This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. This is an opportunity for us to rethink how we are engaging our allies, how we are engaging the world, because we are seeing in very real time the impact that that kind of removal of ourselves from the world stage and collaborating and investing in others is doing. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. The third annual Future Strategy Forum focused on cooperation and conflict in the time of COVID-19. The conference connects national security practitioners and academic scholars. The panel discussion on the impact of COVID-19 on democracy and governance explored how the pandemic and global responses will impact democracy, privacy, and trust in government across the world. CSIS Senior Advisor for Homeland Security and Director of the Defending Democratic Institutions Project, Suzanne Spaulding, moderated the conversation, which took place on June 5, 2020. It featured technology, governance, and public health experts. The Future Strategy Forum is brought to you by CSIS and the Kissinger Center at Johns Hopkins Slice. So to uh, get us started here today, we've got a great panel. Dr. Susanna Campbell is Assistant Professor at the School of International Service at American University. Dr. Lainey Rutkow is Senior Advisor to the President of Johns Hopkins for the National Capital Academic Strategy. She's a professor in the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Bloomberg School of Public Health and a professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the School of Medicine. Camille Stewart is an attorney with whom I had the great honor and privilege of working at the Department of Homeland Security, where she was senior policy advisor for cyber infrastructure and resilience policy. She's currently the head of security policy for Google Play and Android, where she leads cybersecurity, privacy, election integrity, and misinformation policy efforts. So not very busy these days, I guess, huh? Uh, So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Susanna, let's start with you. Have we seen any meaningful pattern in the types of nation states that have been able to guide their countries through the pandemic safely and those that have struggled the most? Particularly, how has this played out in countries that have been marked by civil conflict or states that we refer to as, as fragile states or fragile nations? And what are some of the perhaps surprising strengths that those nations might actually bring to to this response. Thank you very much, Suzanne, and it's a pleasure to be here. I think that there are kind of three general patterns that we see in, in countries that seem to be able to respond. And in many ways, the first one is that they take preparedness seriously. So they take preparing for a pandemic preparing their population, communicating with their population, getting supplies in in place seriously, and realize that you have to start early and you have to actually adapt and keep on top of that. Now, what we see related to that is that there seems to be a pattern where countries that have already experienced some kind of epidemic or pandemic, whether that's malaria to Ebola, actually are better prepared. They understand the consequences of not responding. And we see that 
across governments, including even there's one example where you had South Sudan, the airport being prepared for testing and really testing everyone who came through the airport where at the exact same time in March, Amsterdam and uh, she, and Stockholm were not prepared. So there's a sense that you have countries who take this seriously, they respond, they get things in order, but that's clearly not enough. You have another piece, which is that you need a strong state and thirdly, a strong society. That this is not just about a strong state that can absolutely tell a society what to do. That the society also has to have coherence and cohesion and communication so that it can come together to mobilize its own response. This is a whole of society, whole of state effort. And that requires trust between state and society. And trust is not, this isn't in the countries where we see the countries that have the highest GDP necessarily. These aren't the countries with the strongest military necessarily. These are the countries that have invested in a relationship with the full breadth of their population and the full breadth of their society. And in that we see, and particularly both in the US of course, and in Europe and in fragile and conflict affected countries, that individuals that are most marginalized in society are also most affected by the pandemic. And so I think that in some ways, the, the data on what is happening in fragile and conflict affected countries is still coming in. There was one survey of Sierra Leone that essentially showed that its experience with Ebola meant that they were able to put in place many different preparedness measures upfront and that people were very much aware of what was going on. They knew about COVID-19, they knew what the symptoms were, but that their access to test, their access to the kind of broader things that come from a strong state or at least a strong public health infrastructure was not where one would hope it would be. So it's really this combination. And I think that this challenges, there've been several pieces out there one by Howard French, one in the, in the New Yorker that really talk about Africa being kind of, in particular, being held up as this flashpoint for where, you know, all disaster is going to break loose as a result of COVID-19. Whereas really what you see in many places is yes, there, you know, people are suffering. There are people who cannot protect themselves and who don't have the resources that they need. But you also see people mobilizing, communities mobilizing, and you see states who satisfy the three criteria here, right? That they, they took it seriously, they mobilized early, specifically Senegal, Ghana, and South Africa within the, sub, the sub-Saharan African countries are being held up as that. But they were able to do something that the US and some European countries were absolutely, absolutely not. And I think we all have a lot to learn from that. It's so interesting, Susanna, that, um, you know, I, I uh, for the last year, served on the Cybersecurity uh, Solarium Commission, and in the cybersecurity arena, uh, there, it, it, particularly when you start talking about things like 5G, there's, there's often an autocratic envy, right, that autocratic regimes, you know, have it so easy, they can just order things, they can, you know, they don't have the mess of democracy, and I think we see a little bit of that in, in some of the initial views on 
the kinds of governments that can most effectively handle a pandemic. There's a there's been a kind of autocratic envy, and your insights there really. Uh, interesting and really informative and, and help us understand that it's much more complex than that. And, and unfortunately, not that simple or fortunately. Um, but the, but you also, you know, in addition to having the characteristics of, of societal, of a society that is informed and a government that is competent, uh, there is the resource issue. And, and um, I just want to ask you quickly about the Global Fragility Act, uh, which I know, you know, you, you were involved with and it passed last December before COVID, but um, what are your thoughts on, on how it might impact uh, responses around the world? The core motivation behind the Global Fragility Act, which is essentially reforming the U.S. government aid and diplomatic architecture so that it can better engage with fragile and conflict-affected states. This is a institutional reform bill. The core mandate, the core purpose is even more important because what it is trying to do it is, is it is trying to say, look, the problem with the US response to fragile and conflict-affected countries is in large part the US response to fragile and conflict-affected countries. That it is that it's this highly fragmented bureaucracy where people can't even talk to each other in DC, much less give a clear message to anybody in the country about what's supposed to be done. Furthermore, and in part because of Benghazi, you know, anytime I do field work, it's the Americans who are the most isolated and often the least well-informed about what's going on in that country because they're forced to stay in their huge compounds. And so what this is trying to do is this is trying to take seriously that engaging in fragile and conflict-affected countries is fundamentally different than in other countries and that you need to engage with both state and society. That if you try to just pour all your aid through the state, you're only going to reinforce the state and make it less accountable to its population, right? And so a strong functioning state is one that has a strong relationship with its population in some ways, regardless of what its regime type is. But I think that the risk for me in many ways is that the GFA is not pushed forward and the kind of core reforms are not implemented because they become even more difficult now. Because of COVID-19, it is more difficult for NGOs to get out there and access populations because there's greater demand because people might feel like they need to focus their resources and attention on other countries because money might shift from peace building to public health and not see that there's an enormous overlap between the two. So I think that the, the real opportunity here is to use the GFA as a potential source of innovation and realize that if the GFA were to do anything that to actually change the way that the US government functions in this country, it would be two things that would make a huge difference. One is to actually change the way that the US government engages in security assistance with countries that have a very robust, sometimes authoritarian military and police that do not respect its population, the rights of its population, to actually create some accountability around that. And yet what's happening in the US today may decrease our ability to actually give those messages. That's the first piece. The second piece is to take local partnership seriously. And by local, I mean non-state. So if you're trying to support Congo, if you are trying to actually support 
Burundi, Sudan, any of these places where I've done research, you need to think about who you can work with, who are real partners in the NGO sector, who are think tank partners. Stop flying in all these external experts to do your evaluations, reinforce and support the capacity of the people who live in that country. That is how you get over the barrier that is created by COVID and you have a secondary effect of actually building crucial capacity in those countries. Lainey, you know, Susanna talked a lot, obviously, about the importance of that societal resilience and, society, and, and the pub, uh, public capacity in addition to government capacity, and in some cases, uh, a need to, to prioritize that. Your expertise in public health law and policy, uh, what, is, what do you see as sort of the role of law in the public health context in sustaining that trust between the government and the governed in sustaining uh, societal resilience uh, and in really enhancing the capacity uh, of a nation to respond to something like this. Thanks, Suzanne. And um, and before I, I, I respond to your questions, I wanted to thank you as our moderator and my co-panelists, Susanna and Camille. It's um, a real pleasure to be here with all of you today. And I, I think um, in my response right now, you'll hear several of the themes that, that Susanna raised, but maybe re reflected through a slightly different lens. Um, so public health law is, it um, as you were alluding to it, it's a subset of law more generally. And so that means that it, it gives us a framework to support societal resilience. And hopefully it also gives um, a fair degree of predictability between the governed um, and the government. Among the things that, um, that public health law does is give us um, this infrastructure, both within and among countries, for governance relative to the protection and the promotion of the public's health. It also facilitates interjurisdictional coordination, which is a mouthful, um, but what it really means is the processes by which governments, and it can be um, at the local level, at the regional level, at um, the national level or, or even at the international level, the processes by which they work together. And um, I think about this both in terms of vertical coordination, so that would be, say, a local government working with another local government, or horizontal um, interjurisdictional coordination, meaning, say, a local government working with the next level above it, either a state or a regional government, and then potentially continuing to collaborate with the next level up, meaning a national government. Um, public health law also establishes the availability of resources, and that is particularly important in moments like the one that we're in right now. So it can let us know when and how additional personnel, supplies, um, or um, finances may become available. Public health law also defines the parameters of an emergency, and um, uh, this sounds a bit legalistic, but I think it's an important point when we think about the government and the governed. While many people, if they're um, listening to the radio or watching the news, they'll hear that you know now there's an emergency or, or a disaster occurring. But it turns out there's also, um, the law actually determines when that disaster begins for a jurisdiction and when it ends. And why those dates are so important is because they can have a great impact on the types of resources and the amount of, say, um, additional or emergency funding that becomes available. Um, and, and finally, the last way that I think that public health law can support 
societal resilience is by being um, a resource and providing practical guidance where um, clear answers may be, may be absent. So when we're facing um, a pandemic, like the one that, that we're in now where we have unprecedented global challenges, public health law may not have all the answers um, because these challenges may not have been anticipated by the law, but we can certainly look to established law to help guide us through moments of, of uncertainty. And then to, to answer the, the second piece of, of your question, when, when I, I look ahead and, and think about where, where we are now and perhaps where, where we need to be, I hope that we're starting to see an increasing understanding that public health is not simply a domestic policy issue. Um, the COVID-19 pandemic has demonstrated in every way possible that public health is closely tied to national security and more generally to international affairs. We know that every disaster, whether it's an infectious disease outbreak, whether it's um, a hurricane, whether it's a human-made disaster like terrorism, every disaster starts locally and um, typically has no respect for jurisdictional boundaries. And you know, we can see that right now by how quickly outbreaks of COVID-19 have spanned the globe. Um, and I was thinking about this in anticipation of um, speaking with all of you today, just the phrase COVID-19 crisis has evolved over the last few weeks to be shorthand for everything from the pandemic itself to impacts on healthcare systems and labor markets and supply chains and even geopolitics. So I hope, I very much hope that countries throughout the world are starting um, to learn several lessons here. One is that a pandemic will have ramifications for government for governance that go well beyond public health. And an outbreak in one country can very quickly become an outbreak for the world. So it is naive and simply unrealistic for countries to think that they can go it alone relative to global public health. And, and finally, we do see that some of the societies that at least thus far have had the most effective response to COVID-19, and here I'm thinking about South Korea and, and Taiwan, did retain lessons learned from prior pandemics like SARS, where mask wearing and social distancing had been introduced um, more than 15 years ago, but there's some muscle memory in those societies in how quickly they implemented their response to COVID-19. Yeah, great point, tying back nicely to Susanna's point about uh, you know societal preparedness being such an important part. And, and, uh, and Lady, I love your point, too, about the fact that this, this is uh, not just a public health issue, but a national security issue. And with so many uh, ramifications, we see this playing itself out in the overlap of COVID and elections, right, where we're seeing public health law, election law uh, coming into the courts with very controversial decisions and the trust in our justice system and our courts potentially being impacted along with trusted institutions across the board. So really important issues and, and uh, thank you for that illumination. And you, and you also touched on the international, uh, you know, sort of the borderless nature of this. Um, and one of the key institutions for this international response, of course, is WHO. Um, and I wonder if you want to just take a couple of minutes to, to talk about uh, from your perspective, uh, you know, sort of the public health law and policy perspective, 
the role of WHO and lessons learned? So WHO has been with us uh, since 1948. It's tasked as the UN agency that's responsible for promoting the, the health of, of all people. And um, to speak about WHO, I think it's always important to flag that its funding really comes from two different places. Um, in essence, it has membership dues that, that come from um, its member countries, and that makes up about 20% of its budget. And then the other 80% comes from voluntary contributions. And, and that's a combination of donations that come from countries, um, from um, philanthropies, and, and from the private sector. So the um, what I see as WHO's two key roles are first to be an information clearinghouse um, for, for the world relative to public health. And um, WHO also is the convener of the World Health Assembly, and that brings all of its member countries together once a year to set WHO's agenda for the coming year. So that, that's um, number one. The second role is that when an infectious disease outbreak occurs anywhere in the world, we want to see WHO coordinating the global response. Um, as I said a moment ago, countries cannot stop, for the most part, an outbreak on their own. And this is where WHO comes in. It can declare a public health emergency of international concern, a PHEIC, and that can do many things. Among them, the declaration signals to the world that there is a major health challenge somewhere or to right now everywhere and coordination among countries will be required. Um, so, so that's those are what I see as WHO's roles, but there are two major limitations to what WHO can do, and, and we're seeing some of this play out right now. First, WHO does not have tremendous control over its budget, and that's why I mentioned um, a moment ago that 80% of its budget comes from voluntary contributions. The thing about these voluntary contributions is that they tend to be earmarked for specific projects. And that leaves WHO in a position where it's frequently implementing its um, donors' priorities. And those do not necessarily line up with um, what an independent assessment would say are the world's most pressing public health challenges. The second um, limitation that I see for WHO is that while it has, gosh, a really broad mandate to protect global public health, it cannot actually impose Pose, um, policies. It, it doesn't come with implementation or enforcement authority. So, um, for example, WHO cannot tell a country how it must structure its healthcare or public health system, and it cannot require a country to share data or force a country to make determinations about um, a border closer, a closure during an infectious disease outbreak. It has to rely um, on, on persuasion as a tool to get countries to act. And, and that of course uh, leads us right into these uh, murky, wa murky waters where we see the intersection of public health and geopolitics. Yeah, fascinating, thank you. Uh, Susanna, I know, you know you're, you're steeped in the international organizations as well. And um, I, I wonder if, you're, if you have a thought on the limitations that uh, Lanny has just described um, and whether the, the response to that should be that nation states step up, uh, you know, that the other mechanisms need to be used, or do we need to change, make changes with regard to the 
um, limitations that were just described uh, with WHO? I think that, I mean, these are the same limitations shared by every single aspect of the UN and the Bretton Woods institutions. Yes. And what's extremely important is that WHO is only as strong as its member states make it. And what that means is that if you want and if you need WHO to play a role of coordinating response, of ensuring shared standards, and of essentially enabling countries to address this global pandemic, then you need not only to fund it to do it, but you also need to reinforce its legitimacy. This is all about messaging. This is about this murky stuff of trust and confidence that actually lead to and support changes in behavior. So the fact that we're talking that WHO has been undermined in this period of time is tragic in many ways. I mean, my trust is in the bureaucrats in WHO and in other countries who clearly see its importance and values and I hope will continue to increase unearmarked voluntary contributions because for a, an organization to respond to a crisis, it needs money that is not earmarked unless it's earmarked in general, respond to the crisis. And that's extremely important and it enables WHO to do the best that, it's, that it can and we really need it to do that now. Camille, lots of discussion about trust, right? Trust in, in between the government and the governed, trust in, in institutions and trust in international organizations. Um, we seem to have a deficit of trust uh, these days uh, for a whole variety of reasons. And, um, and, I, and, and, and it has the potential obviously to impact the effectiveness of our response. And one of the things that is getting a lot of attention is, is contact tracing and the polling data that indicates a general aversion to contract, contact tracing in the US. And it's interesting to see what's happening with that around the world. You know, do you think there is a trade-off between protecting democratic ideals and combating the virus as it's often set up, you know, on opposite sides, perhaps, of a scale? Um, you know, and, and how do you, you know, you've been looking at these issues for a long time. What's your sense of how the American public is likely to navigate uh, this set of issues? Yeah, first, thank you for having me. Um, it's great to be on a panel with such an illustrious group. Um, so there are definitely trade-offs we'll have to make. There's a balancing act that needs to happen. And any time of crisis, you kind of have to shift and reassess who is best responding when and how. Um, and right now we're making trade-offs around privacy, around government surveillance concerns, around the loss of free movement, but there are opportunities to be gained. The scale um, that we can respond to this effort by using technologies such as contact tracing or, um, um, or you know, the data that's being released by a number of big tech companies, the access to information that empowers organizations like the WHO to kind of map where the, the disease might move and how populations might be impacted. And the, the resulting improvement in response times are all things that we should be considering as we balance those privacy concerns with, and, and loss of movement um, with, with, these, with uh, this issue. I mean, quite frankly, I think that perception will rule the day, right? The perceived threat of the violence are the virus balanced with the perceived privacy risk or the perceived um, 
limit or lack thereof of government surveillance as a result of adopting things like contact tracing. Um, too few people actually do the work to understand exactly what data will be collected and how that be mapped to other data and you know how that will then be leveraged after this crisis. Um, so it'll all be about perception. How is it talked about in the media? How are people becoming comfortable with the trade-offs that they're making? And I, will, I would imagine that that'll ebb and flow. It'll change over time, right? At the beginning of the pandemic, you might be more comfortable um, staying at home and opening yourself up to sharing information or um, listening to government instructions. But as your finances change or as another issue of concern rises, like this Black Lives Matter movement, people start changing their prioritization of issues of concern. And maybe they continue to mitigate that with, you know, I'll, I'll social distance, but I will still participate or I'll wear a mask, but I have to go to work. Um, but we'll see perception and prioritizing issues of concern really rule how folks view our response to COVID-19. Yeah, it is fascinating to see, you know, over very short periods of time, uh, changes potentially in, in the, how the public balances these various competing interests. And one of the things that I think has been really interesting is the clear demand signal uh, from some corners, at least, for the tech companies to step up and address a bunch of these issues. And, uh, and, 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 some, and in some cases, the tech companies are stepping in uh, because the government is not. So, uh, and taking on what have been traditionally government roles. So for example, and uh, the, the, the contact tracing technology that Google and Apple are, are, um, uh, have developed, uh, you know, they're largely setting the standards for protection of privacy and civil liberties and for the apps that, that can use that underlying technology, et cetera. Um, largely because the government hasn't. And so what are the implications of, uh, of, of our turning to or, or by default relying on tech companies to step into areas that have been traditionally government areas in terms of, you know, government face has constitutional limitations that we've built up and developed over many, many years that don't apply to the private sector. At the same time, the private sector has, li uh, um, the government has liability protections. Uh, that the that the private sector doesn't have, um, and and so you know I know you've thought about these issues. You know what are some of the implications we haven't yet come to grips with? Yeah, we're in an interesting moment. Before COVID, we were in the midst of this tech lash that you know pushed back on the power size and like pervasiveness of these big tech companies. And in this time of crisis, we really had to turn to them, as you mentioned to help stabilize and sustain the economy rather than the previous perception that they were kind of disrupting it or maybe even moving towards being destructive of the economy. Um, and so the demand for contact tracing and technologies like the exposure notification technology that Google and Apple have created um, is a real juxtaposition from that change, from the pushback on things like automation and how much that will scale and take away jobs or the perception that it would. But it also creates a lot of space for us to um, respond in times of crisis. So that means that we've got more people free to take on jobs that can be more forward leaning or can respond in the time of crisis. So it's really difficult to, um, to envision a world where we move back. Um, once you've given this power to the private sector, um, 
they will be continue to have to make tough choices. We've seen a lot of the social media companies make decisions about what information can flow through their platforms about COVID-19, whether it's response or other opportunities. And they have stepped into a role that they didn't want <laughs> and we didn't want to give them, um, both from a technical perspective, but also just a content moderation perspective. And like I said, I don't think there's a way to roll it back. It can be moderated, but we will see them step into this role more and more, particularly around figuring out what our privacy limits are in the absence of legislation in countries like the U.S., right? The EU has been forward, very forward-leaning on things like that, and a lot of these tech companies kind of apply those things across the board, but there's a nuance to that. And as you can see with new crises, um, new dynamics in our you know, social ecosystem, there will be tough choices to be made. And it's very clear that the tech companies are stepping into that role in the absence of legislation, et cetera. And, but from a technology perspective, there are a lot of opportunities here, right? We have seen uh, a focus on our reliance on China and, um, and how our supply chain is affected in times of crisis and how it's linked to other countries. And it has really awoken the private sector to understand its supply chain, right? There has been a lot of stops in the ability to move things um, and build things and even respond in the ways that they would like to to this crisis. And so this is a real opportunity for us to advance the conversation about supply chain and security impacts there. Um, but I do think we are entering into a world order where the tech companies or private sector companies in general, to be frank, um, will take more of a role around our privacy, our security, and dictating social norms. The good thing there is that the private sector is beholden to civil society. And as the public becomes more informed about the issues and starts making informed choices about what the balance of privacy and convenience are, security and convenience are, they will dictate to private sector companies where they should go because they are beholden to them as the users, as the consumer. And so as we push forward, um, there should be an investment in educating the populace because they will be able to turn the tide for both industry and government, quite frankly. So that's so interesting. You know, we think about the role of the private, of the individual in holding government and institutions accountable. And it's one of the reasons that I've been uh, working with others to try to reinvigorate civics education. But it sounds like you're describing perhaps a new 21st century social contract that in, that in which the tech company, tech industry is a third party there, uh, and the role of individuals in holding them accountable as well, and, uh, and, and your uh, suggestion that the public maybe has more power over the tech companies than, than they recognize, than they realize. That's really fascinating. Um, I, we, we do have some great questions. Uh, you mentioned China. We've got some questions from our uh, audience uh, uh, that will take us back to a discussion about China and a number of other things. But um, just before we do, I want to ask one last question about there have been a, a few references that you guys have made to the things that we are experiencing right now, uh, and particularly in the last few days, we, we see uh, anger in the streets over racial injustice and economic disparities. And we've certainly seen the impact play itself out in the disparate impact of this disease um, that is a reflection of a broad uh, set of inequities and um, would be interested in your thoughts on, on you know, how this impacts, for example, the trust that we've talked about that's so important in an effective 
response and protecting the health and safety uh, of individuals. And and any thoughts that you might have on on what we ought to be doing, uh, you know, in this context to address some of those issues. And Camille, maybe you want to start. Well, I think the the trust piece is big. Um, as I talked about it at the beginning, you know, people are making tough choices about prioritizing issues that matter to them. And right now, in addition to prioritizing racial injustice and oppression against this pandemic, they are also faced with a, a lack of trust in government and institutions, right? Even as governments and institutions respond, private sector and public sector respond with statements of support and um, acknowledgement of the issue, many of those are met with distrust, with, um, you know, calling out past behaviors that don't align to this new stance. And people are demanding that these organizations and institutions show up for them. Um, and to the extent that they do, I think that that could advance the response because people will start to get that trust back. But in the absence of that, we are faced with a segment of the population that already was exposed to um, increased uh, like risk of this pan pan pandemic. And now they are, in spite of that, in knowing that, taking additional risk to advocate for something that is extremely important to them and has something that has been, you know, a part of their existence in this country. And so, you know, we will continue to see this tough choice be made and it will have a big impact on how this pandemic spreads or does not spread in this country. And so addressing social injustices, addressing some of these underlying visions in the uh, American you know, society are things that we need to focus on as national security practitioners, as domestic policy practitioners, and writ large, because they will continue to impact these issues of domestic and national import. Thank you, Camille. Laini or Susanna, thoughts? Thanks, um, Suzanne and, and Camille. And before I answer your question um, in the context of COVID, I, I just, I have to start by saying that it is imperative as a society that we stand together against racism and violence and, and inequity. Um, if I if I shift um, to think about this in the in the context of of COVID and with a public health lens, uh, I want I want to talk about data and um, the role of data and trust between the government and and the governed. So it's with data that that policymakers can um, best make decisions regarding response, but data also allows the public to have a better sense of what is going on um, in their country, but also in their community. And, and let me make this more concrete. Um, one, of the, um, one of the groups that I've been working with over the last several months is um, the group that um, maintains the coronavirus.jhu.edu website. And, and as a team, we are thoroughly committed to what we call democratizing the, the data. And we've been tracking at the state level what um, data related to COVID-19 has been released by the states um, stratified by race. And right now, nearly every state has gotten to a point where it's released its um, COVID-19 data for confirmed cases and for deaths by race. But there are only four states, only four out of the 50 that have released testing data um, 
about COVID-19, so the, the results of COVID-19 testing by race, um, only four. And when you think of how far we are into the pandemic and what an information vacuum that leaves for both policymakers and the public, you can't help but wonder how is trust supposed to be fostered and, and reinforced? So I, I very much hope that moving forward, we see some of these data gaps filled in. A great specific example, and thanks for your broader comments as well. Susanna? I mean, I think first, one of the positive things about what's happening now is that a lot of people are being faced with the structural inequality and the, the systematic discrimination against African Americans in this country. And people are being forced to educate themselves about that. And the fact that people need to be educated about that is also appalling because this is the history of this country and it's been ingrained. I'm sitting here with three lawyers. It's been ingrained in the legal frameworks in this country for decades. I think that in terms of the, the response and the relationship to COVID, you're likely to see an enormous amount of local variation. So we have the federal government and its response, and we know what that is. And the kind of abdicating of responsibility by the federal government has left states and local authorities with the real responsibility, both for managing the, the protests and for managing their police and for managing COVID. And I think what you're likely to see is exactly what Camille so eloquently said, which when you were talking, Camille, I wrote, you know, vicious or vir virtuous cycle here, right? For those governments, for those local officials, for those police forces that actually have already reformed and are able to actually put in place significant reforms, you can see a very positive trust building process, which should have effects on both the degree to which the local government is able to reach populations that it hasn't been able to reach before, and support them. In those places where you have an increased break in trust and where you have a hardline response and an unlistening a politicians and officials who don't listen, then you're likely to have a vicious cycle, which could actually lead to much worse outcomes in terms of COVID. And so I think we're going to see a lot of heterogeneity, a lot of variation in the U.S. And that's going to actually have an impact on the trajectory of these different cities, locations, counties, states for decades to come. Thank you. Great uh, insights. And uh, we could have a whole program and maybe we will have a whole nother program to talk about these issues so much more that uh, needs to be said, but I really am very grateful for your initial thoughts, all three of you on this. Um, I do want to move to our listeners and watchers uh, questions, and we've got a, a question um, asking, what have we learned about China's engagement with international institutions as a result of COVID-19? Has the international community been successful in socializing China into a responsible stakeholder? And, uh, and there's another question, which I'll just add to this from another uh, individual uh, with regard to China. Do you think discussions around sanctioning China will actually result in sanctions? Um, and what are some of the you know, pros and cons of that path forward? And do you think China has misled WHO 
in a way. So a series of questions about China. Susanna, do you want to start? I must say that um, one of my friends, Courtney Fung, is very well versed in all of this in relation to China. I think that, and so you should follow her and look at her work. There's been a lot of discussion about how China has been moving into different UN agencies, funds, and programs, and essentially trying to put itself in leadership positions. And from my perspective, I'm not looking at this in a normative sense. I'm saying this is fascinating, right? The degree to which, if you look at how China is occupying a space that the U.S. is leaving, this has huge implications for how these organizations operate. And I think what we see in the UN is that this great power competition is undermining the ability of the organization to do its job. It essentially puts the Security Council at a complete stalemate. Now, if the rest of if the rest of the UN system, if really the bureaucracy can still keep doing what it's doing and innovate in spite of that, that's great. But it unquestionably needs on some certain issues key support of the Security Council. And so I think the the standoff also that is growing between the US and China is not doing anyone any good. And so particularly in relation to to, to COVID-19 and the pan pandemic, but I would encourage a kind of broader discussion and a broader investigation of what is China doing in relation to international organizations and what isn't it doing and what effect is that having? Because these organizations are not flawless to begin with. And they're always balancing trade-offs between people's rights and states' rights. And so that is going to shift. That already has shifted within the past three years and that's going to continue to shift. But the story is not just about China, not just about Russia, not just about the US. The story is also about other member states and how they're aiming to influence these organizations. And that's a fascinating one that I think we shouldn't underestimate. Lainey, do you have some thoughts on that? I do. I, I, I want to um, I want to talk about um, China and and the WHO and, and COVID nineteen. So you know we're we're only a few months into to COVID nineteen, but we know that at the beginning of what turned into this pandemic, that China had information that you know in all likelihood did not make its way to WHO in a timely manner. So start there. Then we also see what many um, believe was hesitation on the part of WHO in January to issue a declaration of public health emergency of international concern, um, most likely driven by internal concerns at WHO relative to what that would mean for China and the organization's relationship to China. Um, and so let's think about what even um, a, a seven to 14 day delay in the in what was ultimately in late January, the issuance of that public health emergency of um, international concern declaration. Given what we know now about um, social distancing and the way that we've seen countries respond, imagine if countries had had um, a two two weeks of an earlier lead time. And and it's it's in the public record that for many countries their response initially to COVID-19 was, well, we'll act when we see WHO issue the, the declaration. And until then, we assume that WHO is kind of 
watching and doesn't yet see the evidence to make this statement. But in all likelihood, what was going on behind the scenes had to do with China and its relationship to this organization. Camille, uh, feel free to comment on that. But I also want to um, pose one another question that came in um, about, uh, you know, we talked uh, to, today a bit about the forms of government, you know, are democracies better positioned than autocracies for responding to uh, this and, and, and the, you know, kind of broken it down in, uh, in a more nuanced way, right? That it isn't that simple, lots more factors go into it. But the other question that, that has been posed is whether culture, uh, you know, plays with the role that culture plays in response and particularly, you know, cultures in which there is a more, more of an emphasis on community good versus individual good uh, and vice versa. And, and clearly that, that kind of trade-off between individual good, individual rights and community goods and, and, the, and the, uh, the broader goals is one that plays out in the issues that you look at, Camille. So I wonder if you've got thoughts on, on that issue as well. Yeah, so I'll just echo um, Susanna and Lainey on the, the China piece and just say this is a, a symptom of a, a larger challenge, right? Our shift in foreign policy and moving out of some of these organizations, our changing stance, our change in investment in the developing world changes our relationship and our dynamics with them. And, you know, as we see this play out in the COVID-19 crisis, this is an opportunity for us to rethink how we are engaging our allies, how we are engaging the world, um, because we are seeing in very real time the impact that that kind of removal of ourselves from the world stage and from you know, collaborating and investing in others is doing um, not only to them, but to us. Um, and then as far as culturally speaking, there is definitely a difference. Um, cultures that focus on this kind of community good and collaboration and um, uplifting one another and community funding and sourcing and things like that um, tend to understand that the reason that they are social distancing is because it might not be, the, 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 the disease might not impact them personally, but it might impact their neighbor. It might impact their elders. It might impact their family members. And they embrace social distancing in a different way. Um, I find that they also create social distancing pods a little bit sooner too uh, because they miss community and family. But, um, but yes, I do think that there is a different dynamic and that social distancing uh, has an opportunity uh, to take hold in a different way than it does in, social, in societies that are individualistic. And you'll have to demand of the government to do a little bit more forcing in those societies as opposed to some of the others. Yeah, really interesting. I've, I've actually, in searching desperately for some good news these days, uh, see that the majority of the public that is honoring shelter in place and wearing masks as a sign that a sense of civic responsibility may actually be more pervasive than the surveys and the polls and all of our, you know, despairing would have us believe. But, um, but that's that may be reaching. Uh, so we have just a couple minutes, uh, literally. And so I know we 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 wanted to talk about things that you know that may be lasting. You know, what are some of the impacts here? And we did get a specific question about democratic backsliding in countries like Poland and Hungary that may be exacerbated by the pandemic and whether we think that will last. I would ask each of you just, you know, in, within a, in a few seconds, maybe the, the things you think either will be permanent changes uh, that are can be tied to uh, COVID and, 
and perhaps things that you think maybe are less so or one or the other. Camille, you can start. Sure. So I'll highlight the, the access to data. The data that will be collected by government through some of these contact tracing applications and um, through other sources and means that they are using to kind of rein in the disease is something that we are not asking a lot of questions about how they will use the data on the back end, how they're mapping that to other data about you, how that will feed other initiatives. And I think that that is an issue that we will have to look towards in the future, particularly as we talk about democratic backsliding. We'll need to keep an eye on how this data rolls into existing structures. Great. Thank you. Susanna? I think that poverty, I mean, the answer is poverty, right? That the degree, the effect of the economic cost of the pandemic on people's lives and livelihoods will have huge consequences, both for basic things such as food security, do people have enough to eat, and for, for longer term trends in poverty, unless yeah. it is addressed by some real social welfare programs that, that attempt to mitigate it. Thank you. Mm. Lainey. What we've seen from past um, disasters and emergencies is that public health rises um, to the forefront of everyone's mind while we're in uh, response mode, and then it very quickly fades away. And, um, and that fading away, which I think is a tremendous danger, speaks to all of the issues that, that we've tackled during this discussion, democracy, um, trust among government between the government and the governed and and societal resilience. So I think it's it's key in this moment while we're still in the midst of the pandemic to think about ways that we can keep um, global public health at the front of the public and, and policymakers' minds moving forward. Excellent summation uh, statements. Thank you so much. Wonderful, wonderful discussion. Subscribe to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.